0: This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts.
1: Dr. Sophie Grace Chapel, how, how are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you. Yes, pretty busy. Busy writing a book on the Criter at the moment. But uh, great. Doing well, well, you
1: just finished another one that we're going to be talking about today. So congratulations on that. I know. Just so many books. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. Well, I'm going to introduce uh, myself and then we'll introduce you for the Sophia audience. Um, I am Dr. Kevin Curry knight I'm a teaching associate professor at East Carolina University in their College of Education. And Sophie, if you'd introduce yourself.
0: I'm professor of philosophy at the Open University in the UK. And I live in Scotland. And I'm working on Plato's Crito at the moment, and issues about political philosophy. And I have at my sleeve a book on friendship, which I'll be writing just as soon as I finish the book on the Crito.
1: Nice. Great. So let me uh, show everyone. uh, I have the electronic version of the book that we're talking about today. So we're talking about um, Dr. Chappell's book, Epiphanies. Oh, okay. You got the physical version. (laughs) Good. Uh, And the subtitle is an ethics of experience. But before we do that, um, you mentioned you work at the Open University. I've seen interviews with you. Um, You're quite proud to work at the Open University. And I've always been interested in the Open University. It seems like a kind of a mission-driven university. There's definitely a mission behind it. So um, fill me in on what, what the Open University is and what why it's called the Open University. It's the
0: Open University because um, to do an undergraduate degree at the Open University, uh, you don't need to have the, the round of A-levels and school leaving certificates, which is normal um, for admission to a UK university. So um, it's it's not true that we take anyone. But what is true is that we are there to enable people who perhaps have had um, a bit of a rough ride in life, or haven't come into education through a conventional route, to to find a way into the education system. It's also the case that there are lots of people who do a degree in one thing when they're young, um, end up wishing they'd done a degree in something else, so they mm. come to us to do that. So we get the full range of people as our um, as our students. We get people who are um, in prison. We get people who are retired. Civil servants who've you know been at the top flight of government for forty years and now they fancy doing some philosophy and um i'm a great believer in what the o u does because I think society should i think the the whole point of society is um the the regime is there like a conductor of an orchestra is to get the best out of everybody in society it's not to um compete madly so that we have a tiny little elite who are the ones who get all the goodies and everyone else is just chucked on the rubbish heap um the point of a society is to facilitate everyone doing the best they can with the hand that nature has dealt them and yeah. um people shouldn't be wasted and that's what we do we make sure that people are given a chance to be
1: the best themselves they can be and it's um is it entirely a, a virtual is it entirely commuter based like it's uh, Um, online and
0: whatnot no it's it's a mixture and i think uh, after the pandemic i think all universities i I think society in general has had an opportunity here which to some extent we've we've blown to change the way we do things and to use online contact more um but a lot of what the open university does is online um and that's good because we waste so much time commuting um, we waste so much, so much time traveling. There are advantages to being there in person and we need to get those as well. But there's a lot that can be done by um, online communication. This interview, for example. Yeah. And it's none the worse for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it does kill me how um, the the kind of modern model of education has always been. You go to the university as this place that's away from everything and that's where all the knowledge is and you have to go there to get it. And um, I, I I know that you know, here at East Carolina University, and it's not the only one. Um, It's almost like they haven't really figured out the impact of the fact that the internet exists yet. It's like, oh, the internet exists. We'll just incorporate it into what we're doing. I'm like, you don't understand. This changes everything. (laughs) I think the knowledge cannot be housed in one spot anymore. It's as big as Caxton inventing the printing press. It's a huge
0: revolution in uh, the way that human beings do knowledge and exchange knowledge. And I mean, the open university was founded in the sixties and originally, uh, the the post office was the perhaps the most important place in the OU because we did everything by
1: physical post. What's
0: now called those VHS
1: tapes. You mail them out and they mail them back. Absolutely. Yes. That was how <laughs>
0: it, it operated for years. And, um, now we do things on the internet. We also have face-to-face teaching. I should say that. And, um, quite a lot of it, but, um, the centre of our operation used to be all done by physical post. People trotting up the garden path with your your mail and dropping it on your through your letterbox yeah. and going away again. Yeah. You posting stuff back round the postbox and and now we do all of that sort of thing through the internet, which is a huge saving of time
1: and energy. It's good, very good. Well, let's uh, go then into the book, um, Epiphanies. So this book is all about. The idea of epiphanies and their role in um, changing people's viewpoints, exposing people to values, things like that. Um, so why don't we give uh, kind of the elevator pitch synopsis of what the book is, then we'll get into what you mean by epiphanies.
0: Well, um, the book is about rationality in the broadest sense. It's about how uh, how we are persuaded and what we're right to be persuaded by. And it's moving away from a model of philosophy which has often said, oh, we make our decisions by modus ponens, or um, if P then Q, P therefore Q, or by syllogism, so um, you know, all men are mortals, Socrates is a man, so clunk, clunk, clunk. Um, And by rationality, very often philosophers have just meant that kind of model of argument, which is modelled as much as possible on formal argument. And I want, for lots of reasons, including reasons to do with evolutionary psychology, I want to move to a broader notion of what rational argument is. And central to the picture of rational argument in ethics that I present in Epiphanies is the idea of an epiphany It's a kind of luminous experience where you suddenly see things in a new light and where connections are revealed that you hadn't thought about before and where things, if you like, click into place. That's the idea of an epiphany. And the idea is that we have these moments of realization, of breakthrough, where we come to see things more clearly, and that can expand our conception of what rationality is. It can help us to get away from um, a kind of obsession with propositions and explicit form of arguments that philosophers have often had, to think, I would hope, more fruitfully and creatively about what it is to be a rational being in the world and how. Those moments of vision can fit into our rationality and expand our rationality.
1: Yeah, and in terms of uh, what you mean by epiphanies, it seems like there's a fairly broad net. I mean, you mentioned those experiences that. I mean, usually they're kind of momentous, right? It's like what it seems like a a a necessary condition for an epiphany is it it changes you in some way. Would you say that's a a necessary condition for that? Um.
0: Well. Uh, <laughs> It changes you is a slightly um, tricksy form of words because Mm -hmm. one way to change you, you you might say, is to keep you going on the course that you're going on because otherwise you might Mm. lose willpower or be deflected or something. So um, it doesn't necessarily have to make you change course. Um, An epiphany can be something that keeps you going on the course you're already on. So one of the examples I talk about in the book is suppose that you're a mountain guide and during the season, you guide the Matterhorn, um, you guide that 14,000 foot mountain in Switzerland, and you, you take clients up it, maybe once a week during the season when the conditions are there. And um, so you get to a certain point called the shoulder on the Matterhorn. I haven't climbed the Matterhorn, I just climbed it virtually, climbed it online. See videos to climbing it. You get to the shoulder on the Matterhorn, and up comes the dawn. And because you only climb the Matterhorn when the conditions are right, the dawn always looks pretty much the same. Um, so you have the same experience. Under some accounts of what it is, for it right. to be the same, as the dawn comes up, and it keeps you. It's it's still marvelous. Maybe you get kind of used to it. Maybe you get kind of expectant that that's what it's going to be like. It's still a marvelous, wonderful experience, and it keeps you going as a mountain. But Mountain guide, it's yeah. I call in the book soul food. So that kind of epiphany wouldn't necessarily change you, but it keeps you going. It keeps right. you on the track right. you're on. Where otherwise there you know, there's always a temptation. Human beings wilt, human beings get tired, um, inspiration dries up, we fall away. Um so if the change is keeping you going on the path that you might otherwise fall back from, then um it's a change. If it's keeping you in the track that you've decided to take up, then it's not a change. So there's two ways of seeing that.
1: Right. And I, I guess some of the elasticity uh, is also, it, it seems to be, let me know if I'm wrong here. Um, it could be a very, an epiphany could be a very emotive experience. It could also be a, a fairly cognitive experience of like, uh, you could articulate what just happened, or maybe you can't articulate what just happened. It could be, Yeah, uh, I, I feel like both of those kind of allow. Yeah. Yeah. It, so, I mean, I, I, one of the epiphanies I, I think I've had, but I'm not exactly sure if this is strong enough to count is something where um, I was following several lines of argument and and evidence and research. And at some point, almost like there there was no reason for this. It all just kind of, quote unquote, snapped into place where all of these things came together in a way that, wait a minute, all of these affect each other. And from then on, I sort of kind of knew how to proceed in terms of how I view things. I don't know if that would count as a sort of epiphany. I I have a paper on
0: uh, thick concepts and thin concepts, which is called, mm. provocatively, There Are No Thin Concepts. And one of the things I do in that paper is talk about uh, boo-hooray ethics. Mm. And I say, well, why just boo and hooray? After all, there are lots and lots of exclamations that we make in English which all have their interests. So I, I give this long list of exclamations, including things like, ah, ba, 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 ba. that's yep, an exclamation yep, yep. that has a particular meaning. Yeah. Um, and, ew, and and face palm, and, and so on. Lots and sure. lots of these things exist in English. It's not just boo and hooray. But two that are interesting with epiphanies are wow and aha. So some of the things we call epiphanies are wow moments, and some of them are aha moments, lightbulb moments. Yeah. And if you want, you can call those epistemic and ethical epiphanies. Though I, I'm a little leery of that terminology because I don't think that it's an exclusive disjunction and it it can begin to sound like one. So it's not like um, new ethical knowledge isn't knowledge and it's not like new epistemic insight isn't also evaluatively charged. But yes, the moment where you suddenly see something, you see how to do something, that can be an epiphany too. And I recently saw a nature documentary which had a nice example of this. Um, A mother chimp is teaching her young daughter how to crack rocks how to crack nuts, sorry, using a mm-hmm. rock. Mm-hmm. She's got this rock. She's banging away at the nut. And the daughter watches and pads off and fetches, fetches a branch and tries to bra- break a walnut with a mm-hmm. branch. Of course, the branch just snaps. So she trots off again. And she comes back with a tiny little stone and hammers away at the walnut and just bruises her fingers. It's no good. Comes back with a huge stone, and she can barely raise it over the walnut. work. and that's the Then she comes back. Her eyes light up. And she trots off and comes back with the right-sized stone. Now, that's a rational process. And, um, of course, it's arguable what's going on there. But perhaps the young chimp has had this breakthrough moment where she suddenly sees how to do something. And this connects with the thought I have had about knowledge for a long time, that philosophers are obsessed with propositional knowledge. But um, there are other kinds of knowledge, too, in particular acquaintance and knowledge how. And knowing how, I think, is very often subject to this kind of epiphany. We suddenly come to see how to do something. And and that kind of knowledge, how, I think, is um, very clearly in the overlap territory between ethics and um, epistemology, because it is, an, it is new knowledge, so it's epistemology, but it's about how to act, so it's ethics as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, well, I was going to ask you, this touches on the question of, um, I always like to know why someone wrote, the book that they're, they're, uh, that they're writing. Um, and it seems like this book was born out of some frustration with that. So can you say a little bit more about, you know, why this book and, and what is, what do you want this book to do? How will, how will philosophy potentially look different if people read this and say, okay, you know, this is onto something. I wanted it to be a subversive
0: influence and maybe, um, if it gets influential enough, maybe even a revolutionary influence, I, I don't want it to um, found a school. Right. I don't want to start other people copying what I'm
1: doing. Um, epiphanalism? <laughs> Sorry? Epiphanalism? It would be like, a, yeah, there's yeah. emotivism, cognitivism, and epiphanalism? That's not the aim at
0: all. Um, I think in philosophy, we have this tendency to break things up into isms, as you say, into schools, and into finding someone who is, you know, the leader of our sect... And we all do do what they want what what they do that that's not what I want at all. What I want is to question the categorizations to question the system of isms that were given so um i mean i mean it's it sounds enormously pretentious. Forgive me the pretentiousness of this comparison, but I think Wittgenstein was a philosopher who didn't want disciples but wanted people to upend their presuppositions and their assumptions about how philosophy should be done and in that way, uh, without claiming at all to be in the same league as Wittgenstein, I'm trying to do something sort of Wittgensteinian. I'm trying to get people to think differently about how we do philosophy, and to see what other kinds of landscape might be opened up if we if we walked away a bit from the familiar landscape that we have in ethics. You know, sort of a three way split between virtue ethics and consequentialism yeah. and deontology. How does the landscape look if we walk back a bit more and look at it from a long distance? What other kinds of possibilities might there be if we start thinking outside those frameworks? Um, So yes, I'd I'd love to write a subversive book.
1: And it seems like it's um, really about how we do morality, maybe even in the world outside of philosophy. I just... um... Like I, I was telling you before we recorded, um, one of the things I've been doing over the past year is essentially kind of looking at research uh, in, 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 in psychology and, and other things that, about how morality is really constructed in, the, in, in the, the real world outside of philosophy. And it doesn't seem to look a whole lot like the way philosophers go about their business. Yeah. Philosophers go about their business and, and kind of what we do is we have a moral dilemma and we sort of either apply a particular system. Whether it's consequential consequentialist or virtual ethics, and then we kind of figure out how to do it and it seems like um if anything in the real world, if you appeal to any sort of systemization at all, it's almost after the fact it's almost okay, here's what I think I should be doing, yeah purely without uh, appealing to systems, let me see if that a- accords with this particular system or, or whatever yeah um and it seems like epiphanies kind of uh I guess fit well with that, you know, so does empathy. There's a lot of research now on kind of empathy and the role of empathy, uh, the role of like fiction and etc. cetera, and, and kind of expanding empathy in a way that argument can't quite seem to, to get at. This was why I called the book
0: in its subtitle an ethics of experience, because um, one of the noises I do want to be making in the book is come off it. Um, I want to say to philosophers, look, we don't, in fact, reason like this. That isn't in practice how we actually reason. Going back to the chimp and the, the chimp's mother, they they don't. She, the chimp's mother doesn't write out a list of instructions and pass it over to the young chimp and say, here, follow that. Um, the process is a process of trial and error, and it's a process of watching and copying. And I want to say that those... I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm quite keen on an evolutionary biological approach to a lot of things, and this mm-hmm. is one... Um, I think we should think about knowledge within its naturalistic framework. Um, knowledge and learning are things that happen in all sorts of species. We're just one species. We have a paradigm of what we think knowledge and learning is. Maybe we should expand that paradigm, not only by getting academics to say, come on, ordinary people don't, don't count that as reasoning and thinking. That isn't how they do it. Um, but even by saying, come on, that isn't how other species learn. Look at what other species do, think about what works for them and why it works, entertain the possibility that they're not just dumb brutes, that they have ways of being rational that we can actually learn something from and mm-hmm. apply in our own lives. So it, it is it is a kind of expanding circle picture. And one, one thing that's connected here, um, some years ago I was teaching an introductory philosophy first-year course, and I thought I I wanted to introduce them to The notion of an argument. I wanted to introduce them to uh, modus ponens and syllogism and um, uh, argument by uh, disjunction. And so I said, right, here's an exercise for the first years. Ask them to get hold of a newspaper article um, and an op-ed piece in a newspaper, and to go through it, seeing what the argumentative moves that the piece makes are. Mm. Say, oh, is this argument by disjunction, or is this syllogism, or is this Modus ponens, what's going on here, argumentatively speaking? And I thought, this is a great way of inducting people into logic. And then I, th- I thought, right, well, better test that this exercise works. And got hold of an op ed piece myself and tried to go through it doing that. And immediately thought, no, this exercise is absolutely impracticable. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because what's going on in, in, in these arguments is nothing like what goes on in a formal logic exercise that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with formal logic it just means there's more to rationality and reasoning than these um than formal logic can show it doesn't mean either that the op-eds are necessarily badly argued of course they might be but there again they might not you need a wider notion of logic to understand what's going on in in informal argument and um it's the same kind of thought about ethics you know Maybe, what if what's going on out there where people are not acting as committed consequentialists or committed Kantians or whatever? Maybe if what's going on out there is not actually benighted, maybe they're onto something, maybe they're doing things the right way. And it's our philosophers with our very constricted account of what rationality can be who need yeah. to make something from them, not the other way around.
1: Yeah, you, well, you have two really, uh, really interesting chapters on uh, the phenomenology of. I think, really moral experience. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that that it's the phenomenology of, because you do try to go through as, as best we can, like, what is our actual experience of, of reality? Yeah. I'd love you to talk about that a little bit, because it seems like um, the goal there is 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 somewhat to say, you know, philosophers often talk as if we sort of um, decide values after the fact of experience. We have experience, yeah. then we sort of write the values onto it or we decide what the values are after the experience. And and it seems like you're saying, really, if you really think about our experience of life, you can't really uh, experience without value already embedded Mm -hmm. in it.
0: Yeah, that's right. So in chapter four, I raised the question, what is it like to be a human being? And coming back to informal modes of argumentation, I'm often inclined to think that actually, the most powerful mode of argumentation that people need to be exposed to with ethical questions is actually just a slice of someone else's life. Mm. So last night I was cycling through the middle of Dundee in Scotland where I live and I noticed there was, say, a pro-life protest going on in front of one of the council buildings. And I'm not sure why, because as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been a vote in the Scottish Parliament on abortion recently what was going on last night was um another issue that some in in the scottish parliament was another issue that some pro-lifers sometimes target which is actually um a gender recognition reform bill that's going through the scottish parliament so i was expecting i I saw there were people protesting outside the council building i thought oh this is going to be um a, a gender identity protest isn't it Mm. so i I cycled up close enough to read the signs and no it was an abortion protest much to my surprise now i think what's needed a lot of the time to make progress with um, the famously intractable abortion debate is just that people should see the experiences that are driving the other side and that are Mm. making them take their positions and Often no words are involved. It's simply a matter of coming to understand someone else's experience. And if you understand it, then there are some things you just won't say. So um, I'll I'll go out on a very dangerous limb and and say some concrete things about the abortion issue here. So first of all, I think on the pro-life side, I don't think that anyone who has um, experienced a stillbirth will be inclined to say that um, life in utero is is simply dispensable. It simply doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking from my own experience there. Uh, my wife and I had um, – she, she had a stillbirth mm-hmm. so, 25 mm-hmm. years ago now, and it was a harrowing experience and it changed our lives. And no one who's been through yeah. that experience, I think, is going to be easily persuaded – that life in utero is simply discountable. It doesn't matter at all. Um, And on the other side, on the pro-choice side, I don't think anyone... This, thank God, is not an experience I've had personally, but anyone who has lived through having a child of, say, 12 or 13, she gets pregnant and she is terrified. Uh, Perhaps she's been abused. Perhaps that's why she's pregnant. I don't think anyone who's been through that experience... Um, can say, oh, responsible mothers don't go for abortions. Um, Mm, Responsible mothers would never dream of doing that to their unborn child, how dreadful. Um, So I I think there's a case where sometimes what we need to do is just shut up and listen, bluntly, and where the, the real force of the argument depends directly upon experiences and upon understanding and evaluating them. Um, and making sense of them, and a lot of this is a process of a word you used earlier, Kevin, a process of empathy, a process of getting some insight into what it's like to be a human being, and what it's like to be that human being, what it's like to go through that experience mm. and what that experience is worth, and why it should affect you in in a much stronger way than perhaps it does, which is often what I want to say to pro life people that, um yes i understand your concerns about the unborn child at least i think i do i hope i do but have you even thought what it would be like to be that teenage girl have you even thought what that would be like and how how can you take the power to decide what happens to her body out of her hands and put it in the hands of a bunch of cops and legislators hundreds of miles away how can you possibly do that
1: yeah i mean this this probably, I mean, going back to to your chapter, um, I mean, it seems like what you're saying here then is that in either of those situations, it's not like you go through the situation and then you kind of superimpose a a value on it. You superimpose a value judgment. It's right. You you don't go through a stillbirth and then figure out kind of what the value of that experience was. The value of that experience is actually part and parcel with the experience itself. And it would almost be We'd almost look at someone strangely if they were able to disentangle the experience from the value as if the experience came to you valueless. Um, so,
0: so, yeah. So to return with no doubt some relief from the very difficult um, practical issue of abortion for and against, uh, to return to a safe level of abstraction. Um, but it's not a level of abstraction, actually. One of the big things I'm attacking uh, throughout the book and especially in chapter four, is the, the familiar fact-value distinction. And precisely, as you say, Kevin, this idea of a two-stage process. First, we get the facts. And then once we've got the facts, that gives us the, a, a way to figure out what values supervene on those facts. I'm very much against that double-decker universe kind of view. Because, yeah. um, well, for a start, because I think the notion of a fact is itself an evaluative notion, um, to have the facts is to have something that you should trust, something that you should believe, something yeah. you should rely on in assertion and practical reasoning, and so on. Um, facts are not evaluatively neutral, and in any case, it all comes to us at once. And that's one of the main points in, in Chapter 4. It all comes to us at once. We are bound up um, with value. We We can't avoid confronting value wherever we turn, whatever we do. It's always... To, to use a phrase, continental stuff, it's always already there and waiting for us. And that's what I'm trying to say also in Chapter 7, where yeah. I do the closest I get to orthodox meta-ethics in the book. And the you know the the big rhetorical question that I want people to hear there is, well, sure, there's the democratean world, as I call it, the world of atoms and the void. You can get that level of abstraction in physics if you want to, and it's useful for some purposes. There's also the, the war and peace world, the Tolstoyan world, as I call it, a world thick with um, human interaction, with emotion, imagination, evaluation, care, uh, concern, loss, gain. And um, so the big, the big rhetorical question here is, what makes you think that the first world is more real than the second?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Isn't the least you should say that they're both real, and shouldn't you add to that, lots of rhetorical questions here, shouldn't you add to that something about which of them we actually live in?
1: Right. Yeah. Um, so, but you are also a moral realist, uh, yeah. right? Especially um, when you talk about epiphanies, you talk about them as sort of giving you insight to values that, if, if I'm right about this, you say something like, they're already there for the taking. You're just kind of getting a glimpse into them in a way that you hadn't before. Yeah. How does that square then with the idea that different people could have different epiphanies, leading them in different directions, even on the same topic? Because <laughs> confession, I used to be an angry atheist. I used to be one of those. And one of the things I, I, I think I can look back now and say, one of the things we as angry atheists didn't appreciate was we said, well, why aren't those theists more rational? Why don't they you know, come more rationally to this stuff? And when you really look at what drives people into religions, it is often more the kind of experiential epiphany side. It's like, if you feel what I feel, you couldn't be an atheist. But I also think looking back on it, I think most of the atheists that really tried to square it down to, to, well, we're just being the rational ones. If you really think about what led them to atheism, you would probably find a very similar epiphany at some point, right? So that means that different people could have different senses of like, at some point I came to this overwhelming experience that there was no God. Mm-hmm. Other people, at some point I came to this overwhelming experience that all of this was God, right? So you're different people are pointing in different directions and epiphanies can lead you in different places. So how does that square potentially with a moral realist account?
0: Well, um, so much to say here um, to start with, um, I want to distinguish um, pluralism, hmm.
1: the, the
0: pluralism-monism distinction from the relativism-realism distinction. So um, you can go two ways when you discover the, I mean, the, the indubitable truth that people have different perspectives on things. Of, of course they do. Um, and often those perspectives go deep and pretty much frame an entire conceptual scheme so an example i was talking about with a friend the other day um color schemes in different languages work differently so i think i'm right in saying that in welsh and in scots gaelic there is a word which means bright blue but also bright green and there's a word glass which means dark blue but also dark green Hmm. so It's like their colour vocabulary has been set up differently, the the sets cross-cut with the sets that we have in English. Um, Now, that is a case of pluralism, but it's not a case of relativism because there's there's no reason to say, well, these schemes are in conflict, nor is there a reason to say, um, well, these schemes, um, at, at most one of these schemes can be true, but we have no reason to think that one is rather than the other. Therefore, we should conclude that both are false because they contradict each other, which is, I guess, the standard relativist pattern. Or take another case, um, also a linguistic case. Some languages have an orthodox tense system, orthodox from our point of view, like English does and like Latin and Italian and French do. Some systems have an aspectual system, which is not exactly tenses and works Mm. differently, which I believe is the case in Russian. And some languages don't have a clear tense system at all, like Chinese. Now... Um, which of those has got reality right? Um, we don't have to conclude from the fact that there are different stories about reality, that they must be false. We could conclude, um, we, we, we should conclude that none of them is complete. That's for sure. But things can be true and partial. Um, so that's one thing I want to say. Different people's accounts of the world can be partial truths, even though they're not the same story. That can be fine. But of course, the, the big relativist concern is is what if they conflict? Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, we move on from the possibility of pluralism and realism to the conclusion that um, there is plurality and therefore none of them can be true. Um, but as I say, I'm, I'm going over the reasoning. and I'm, I'm not entirely sure why it's supposed to work so well. But let's mm-hmm. take the case that you mentioned, the case of God's existence, where perhaps it does seem fairly clear how it works. Either God exists or she doesn't which is it? Um, And some people think that God does exist, some people think that God doesn't, and they think so, as you say, on the basis of pretty overwhelming existential experiences a lot of the time. And what is one to say about that? Well, what I want to say about it is, um, actually, we don't have the grounds here to um, assume that we have an argument for relativism, what we have the grounds for is a disjunction. Either this side of right or that side of right. Either that mm. perspective is correct or that perspective is correct. Um, they can't both be correct. But then when you look at the perspectives, they're enormously complex, and there are bits of those perspectives which could be in both, on, on both sides of the theism-atheism debate. For example, one familiar uh, case of this is the experience that many theists report of desertion by God, of the dark night of the soul, mm-hmm. uh, sensing God's absence. So, if if the if the ground for atheism is the experiential ground for atheism is simply a sense of God's absence, well, lots of theists report that too. Um, if the ground for theism, conversely, is simply a sense of the the joy and the life and the the wondrousness of the world, well, lots of atheists report that too. So, I guess what I want to do here. Um, being myself a theist who who used to be angry, but is I, I don't think I'm an angry theist anymore. Just a, <laughs> a fairly laid back theist. I I think what I want to do is perhaps a kind of eschatological move and say, from where we are with the evidence we've got, perhaps um, if we step back from our own perspectives, we might well say, well, this can't be resolved from the evidence we've got. Um, right. Let Let's see where it goes. But also, let's not lose. Uh, confidence in our own perspectives. Yes, they're provisional, but that's how it looks to us now. Let Let's see where it goes if we keep talking. Let's keep the conversation open and see where we can get.
1: Right. I mean, relativists will kind of refer to the argument from disagreement, or the the appeal to disagreement, or faultless disagreement. And yeah, I mean, to your point, it's that that doesn't seem very convincing in in mm. most in many other areas of life. Yeah. When physicists disagree, understandably, potentially faultlessly, we say, "Well, there must be something we're missing." maybe in the future we'll resolve this but i wonder if that's if that's where reason comes back into play because um i think you had mentioned through social media that a review that you received from the book uh in some sense maybe mistook you for sort of um putting reason on the on the far far back burner if not maybe ignoring it altogether yeah and i think you were pretty adamant that that that's not what you were doing so is that where the role of reason maybe comes back into play okay so yep. we have these epiphanies maybe they lead us in different directions well at that point maybe we can start to reason together yeah and figure that out
0: yeah um so this this was um a review the, the boston review of um of my book and the the reviewer was um fairly sure that at certain points at any at any rate I was I was backing away from reason. This was Rachel Fraser from Oxford. And um, I do want to reply to that. No, I'm not backing away from reason at all. I'm trying to go for a bigger conception of what reason is. But it, it is right to say that I think um, when we find ourselves with an intractable disagreement, we do actually need to get back to the the talkative kind of reasoning again. And that, that's what's going on in chapter eight of the book. Um, I think that... Um, Exploring our disagreements through rational dialogue is very important, and I think there is something to be said about, of a Habermasian sort, about what the transcendental conditions of possible dialogue must be. For us to have a dialogue at all, um, what must be shared in common? Well, there are some substantive uh, norms, I think, which follow from that. Um, so so yes, I mean, we, we do get back in the end to talkative kinds of reason, and to explicitly rational kinds of reason and then I think we have an interesting debate to follow through but one thing that I want to say about that debate is I think um, one one thing I'm always doing is questioning presuppositions and um, a recurrent theme of mine I'm I'm sure it's very annoying to other philosophers is people try to set up a thought experiment and I say but that couldn't happen you couldn't be in that thought you wouldn't be in that position (laughs) in the first place so um, I often play this card against trolleyologists to their immense disappointment and annoyance with me. And I'm, I'm just not playing the game. They exclude me from the game because I'm not playing yeah. it. I, I want to know why, why all these people are down in the mine in the first place and blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> and, and, and that just annoys philosophers. And I, I don't review, I, I, I don't view annoying other philosophers as always a completely negative outcome. Here's Here's an article I'd love to write, which I'm sure would annoy lots of people. Uh, because it disrupts a burgeoning cottage industry. Um, peer disagreement. I'm not actually confident um, that there are any clear cases of peer disagreement at all, which are interesting enough to be worth, um, you know, making the standard moves in the peer disagreement debate, like um, hmm. we should be conciliationist, we should we should decrease our confidence in our own view because the other side, who are equally rational and equally well-informed, have right. a different view. I'm just dubious about whether there are any clear, interesting Mm. and substantial peer disagreements in the required sense at all. I mean, the the familiar case is the restaurant bill. Mm. Um, Whenever there's been a disagreement over a restaurant bill that I've encountered, it hasn't been um, an obstinate disagreement at all. You just keep going through the figures until you say, oh, someone says, oh, I'm sorry, I missed that figure there. Or I didn't carry that number. Yes, I've been an idiot. Sorry. Debate over. Right. So, I mean, what would be interesting cases of peer disagreement? Well, maybe abortion is such a case. Um, maybe the existence of God is such a case. But when we look at the little cases of peer disagreement, like the restaurant bill, right. um, sorry, the restaurant check in America, yeah, but, yeah. Um, when we look at those little cases, what quickly emerges is that actually, I, I think what quickly emerges is that actually there aren't any very convincing cases at all. So maybe the same is true in the big cases as well. Maybe peer right. disagreement on big scale is is not actually something that you you get very often, if at all, and hmm. so maybe the whole of this cottage industry is based on um, a false idealisation, uh, which doesn't correspond to anything in reality. This is the kind of troublemaking hmm. move I'm always doing. I decentralise right. debates by throwing in this kind of
1: hand grenade, and it it annoys the yeah. socks off people. See, I guess. Um... You know, I I mentioned earlier one of the ways I came across this book, and and one of the the things that I think you know made me respond to it really well is that you know my exploration of of how decision making often works in the the real world, and just a kind of mounting evidence that there's a whole lot of non-rational, at least in the the way most philosophers would want ways that those things go about. And I don't know, like so even with the trolley case that you mentioned. um, I think in graduate school, I just started thinking about, well, you know, the presumption is that there is a, a, a uniquely correct answer that we can get to this with reason. Why would we even assume that? Yeah. And that was before I got exposed to the work of Joshua Green, whose dissertation showed that yeah. in neuroimaging, when you look at people who decide one way or the other, it's just two areas of the brain screaming at each other, <laughs> um, right? And there's no real reason you would resolve it one way or the other without yeah. begging the question of this is the appropriate framework to use. So, I guess that's a long way of saying that when I read your work, I almost wonder, I almost took, the, took it in, in the opposite way, which was when you see certain cases of uh, quote unquote faultless disagreement like that, could it also just be that, that the different folks involved have had such different extra cognitive experiences yeah. that there's simply no way you're going to find a middle, or there could be no way you're going to find a middle ground? Yeah. Um, you know, and I think of no episode of the show I'd do would be fitting if I didn't mention William James, who is is one of my favorite and oh, I have that, that and picture too. over there. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. And and one of the things he says I think it was in the sentiment of rationality, which is in the, the Will to Believe collection. But I remember right, he says something like, You're not going to convince someone of a position unless they can sort of feel that position Yeah. kind of correct as well. So the example I always think of is like, if you are a person who experiences a world with moral facts, just at the experiential level, like these are strong moral facts that I, yeah. you're never gonna the best argument in the world is probably not going to knock many of those people out of their moral realist positions.
0: Yeah.
1: It's, I can't make myself believe something I'm not actually feeling. Yeah. Even if you have a great argument for it, it just seems so absurd to my experience. So I guess that's the way I took what what you're writing in in the book maybe in an opposite direction from what you just said well um one of the things i say early in the
0: book is um i'm going to start by listing some cases that i take to be epiphanies and um it's always important to start you're putting your cards on the table in a sense when you show what the stock of examples is that you're working from because very often i mean coming back to abortion I think this is, and, and to discussions about the existence of God. I think it's often a very good question to ask, and rather a Jamesian one, to ask about your interlocutors. What, what's burning them? What is the fire in their bellies? Which exactly are the cases yeah. and experiences in their background which make them so hot about this issue? Why do they feel so strongly about it? And um, going into that is going into their, their backdrop of experience. And I think it's very important to do that for the um, kind of expanded conception of rationality that I want to work with, where very often, you know, the, the real stuff, the, the real reasons why this player is at the table playing this hand, they're, they're not cards that are on the table. they're They're in the background somewhere. And I, I think this metaphor is running out of steam now. But in any case, what brought them to the table, why they're arguing it, why they're playing this hand? a lot of that is, is not visible at first sight and you won't get to it just by looking at the logic of the modus ponens or syllogism or whatever it is that they're presented. You need to think further, you need to look further into their background to understand it. And um, going back to Joshua Green and yeah. changing tack, apparently, but not really, um, there there has been at times in discussion of trolleyology, been this tendency to appeal to neurological results which show that um, there's one bit of our brains which says, oh, oh you should flip the switch, yeah. kill the one minus, save the five, um, which is all new neural architecture, and it's all cognitive, and it's all rational, and hooray for that, and the stuff which makes you want not to flip the switch is evolutionarily old, and it's primitive. And so it's right. what's going on right. here is right. kind of... Right. Um, You know, hang on a minute. Actually, this argument's been driven by rhetoric and it's sort of a sense of man rhetoric, brunovsky like rhetoric. And what's really good is to go with your new um, cognitive systems and and not to follow. Which is what
1: Joshua Green does in his book, and I was always perplexed by that choice.
0: Yeah, I mean, why not flip that on its head and say, well, hold on a minute. Um, The new cognitive architecture has been tested a lot less. It's got a lot less of a track record of success behind it. This old stuff has been tested more and it's more in common with other species and after all some of those other species are much more successful than we are maybe we should um think twice before decrying it just because it's old
1: yeah well um uh lisa feldman barrett uh in her book how emotions or how, uh, how emotions are made i think it is um Oh no, it's in another book that, that she wrote about miss about the brain. She challenges the very idea that we can think that we should think of the brain as there's this old part and there's this new part. Yeah. Um, I mean, she says that it just you know, I guess if you're thinking in evolutionary terms, it makes sense to say that the amygdala and the central part is is older yeah. than the, the neocortex. But I think her point is it doesn't really cash out to anything. That doesn't yeah. mean anything for what we should do.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, we should think of our brains as this kind of uh, federation of things. Doesn't matter what parts were older. And, theory, and and I mean, strictly speaking, it's not like any one of us has an older part of the brain. Our brains were developed pretty much at the same time, yeah. right? We all came out of the womb with, with brains. <laughs> so the brain starts at that point. But um, no, it, it brings me, though, to a thought about earlier when you talked about why you wrote the book and in the book, when you spell this out, um, you and I are both frustrated by the same thing, which is, you know, philosophers tend to kind of um, prioritize the... Modus tollens and those processes, um, but I guess why do why is it that philosophers are generally ha- or have been resistant to things like looking at the role of empathy, looking at the role of epiphany, looking at the role of what beliefs do for our sense of identity? I have a theory on that, but you've worked on this book way longer than I've thought about this issue at all. So I'm guessing that if you have a theory, it's probably way better than my theory. <laughs> So do you have an idea as, as to why uh, philosophers are going to read this? And I can just hear the voices saying, you are making our job so much harder and so much <laughs> less confident.
0: Well, you, you, you probably know the old joke about the, the drunk who is guttling around underneath the lampposts and the policeman comes up to looking him and for he says, keys. Um, what are you doing? He says, I'm, I'm looking for my house keys. And the policeman says, um, okay, well, I'll, I'll help you have a, having a look around in the light just here. And the, uh, the drug says, I didn't drop them here. And the police says, oh, well, where did you drop them? He said, oh, back back in the alley back there. And he says, well, why are you looking here? Because there's more light here. Yeah. I think philosophers very often, um, even before the invention of research grants and research funding um, for projects which are fashionable or progressive, Um, I think philosophers are always tempted to keep hammering away at what they're good at, at what they know how to do, and at what they specialise in. And so because we are, you know, by character and by training, pointy-headed logicians, it's very natural for us to to pursue the pointy-headed logician line and not to think hard about other ways of going at uh, the question what an argument is, what rationality is, which perhaps... Are the preserver of the other departments. Now that that's a very mm. oversimplifying answer and deeply unfair to a lot of philosophers, um, but I think there's something in it. We we pursue the ways that we do because we can get funding for them, because they're what we're used to doing, and because they go on in our discipline. I think third's important too. Philosophers, um, we we can be very turf wary in our approach. This is the kind of thing that philosophers do. That isn't. So we'll do no. this and not that um and in answer to that one of the things i'm saying here is you know think about the mother chimp and the baby chimp who is learning to crack crack nuts from her mother why isn't that an argument why isn't that process whereby the 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 young chimp starts out not having a clue how to crack nuts and ends up capable of doing it why not call that an argument i think it's an argument Mm -hmm. it's a rational process so yeah i mean i am i am doing things which will Frustrate people and will undermine funding bases and will take us away from what we're from our comfort zones. But um, I make no apology for that because I think it's important. I think it's cognitively important.
1: See, I would add a few things to to those. uh, I I think those those reasons make sense. Um, I I would add a few more things. I, I would say also I think that people will react negatively to things like the role of empathy, et cetera, because. Philosophy, just like the natural sciences, tries to be what I would call open source, meaning that, you know, if you change your mind on something, you have to be able to kind of give an account for it, because that's how we socially kind of keep ourselves honest and try to persuade each other. So if the idea that epiphanies play a pivotal role is true, then to the extent that they're not also open source, I think philosophers are going to have a hard time with that. Yeah. Right. Like, like, you know, I just, I just felt it really deeply one day so deeply that I can't deny it. Yeah. It isn't really an open source sort of argument. Like you can't really challenge that in a way. I think a lot of philosophers would say, well, we need to make sure all of our beliefs are challengeable. Yeah. So I think that would be.
0: I, I think, I think if the story about your change of view is that bare, then it is going to be hard to justify it. And I think it is going to be challenged by people saying, well, you're just telling us, you know, that that's just like your opinion, man, is going to be the response. And there's, there's something fair about that, actually. But what you might be able to do is give a narrative, and a narrative is not an orthodox philosophical argument, but it is a kind of rational account. And so, for example, I, I think philosophers are coming to see the importance of narrative accounts in a number of areas. So, for example, if I want to explain why I'm now a philosopher of epiphanies, then mm. I think I've got a lot to say about that, but certainly part of it is a narrative. It's about my my own search for a fruitful way of doing philosophy and almost stumbling upon epiphanies as a a useful way of thinking about philosophy, which was itself um, epiphanic for me, you know, discovering that epiphanies were something that I could use to think about philosophy. So um, in one way, the answer is, you know, um, you you want a rational justification of of why this approach? Okay, well here's a narrative which explains why we're taking. Mm. A, why isn't that a rational justification? So again, it's about expanding the bounds of argument, and I connect that with something that I see going on in some uh, parts of philosophy that's been going on for quite a while now. One of my favorite books is um, Knowledge in the State of Nature by mm. William, by uh, William William uh, sorry Edmund Craig, and. I was trying to say William Lane Craig there. Edward Craig, <laughs> not William Lane Craig. No, definitely not him. And Edward, right. Edward Craig's argument, Edward Craig's argument is about knowledge and what knowledge is. And his way of getting at what knowledge is is not to offer a, an if and only if definition, mm-hmm. but to offer a story, um, a just so story, which is answering the question: For what kinds of purposes would humans need?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think that kind of narrative approach can be very fruitful. Here's another case. I'm just about to do this with my writing on the Crito. Um, it's, It's a teaching text. I'm going to bring the students up against the question, what is a state? And I'm going to tempt them with the thought, I'm going to rub their noses in the thought that they should have an if and only if definition of the state to offer. And then I'm going to say, actually, that's not fruitful. Here's a good way to think about a state ask yourself the question for what purposes might human beings want a state Mm -hmm. or something like what we call a state for what purposes would that be useful and then you go on from that to paint a state of nature story and you say look actually the the state of nature the condition of nature is not as Rousseau pictured it it's more like the Hobbesian picture but it's a bit more specific in detail than the Hobbesian picture the state of nature is warlordism so you have people trying to get on and grow their stuff um Uh, make their sausages out of their pigs, live their lives on their farmstead. That's one kind of human being, and you have the other kind who come along and plunder and Mm. destroy them. So what do you want a state for? Well, you want protection from that. So how does the state go? Well, one form it takes is the feudal form, which is to say you pay one warlord some money to be your lord and to look after you and protect from other warlords. Another way of protecting yourself is to form a city, and um, then you hope that it's a strong enough city to resist warlordism and to, to get them away from yep. you. But there's a reason why one of the standard epithets of Achilles in the Iliad is Ptole Porthos, the Sacker of Cities. It's because those cities were not strong enough to resist this warlord. Hmm. And so tell us, You can tell a story about states which goes on from there, and I think it's more interesting and fruitful than an if-and-only-if condition uh, definition of state. So it's that kind of story. Yeah. About how we can use narratives in rational discussion, which are not right. exactly the same thing as a definition, and they don't fit into standard frameworks of syllogistic argument. But that's right.
1: What... I think that, I, but I also think that what what uh, those narratives are also, which which would bring me to another reason why I think that people are often resistant to the type of talk about epiphanies and empathy, and is that um, reasons. in the traditional sense of kind of, you know, giving rational argument seem more predictably likely to change people's minds, at least in theory, than narratives do. I don't think that would cash out in the real world, but I think there is a sort of fear of if we don't, if we back away from rationality in the traditional philosophical sense, we sort of make it harder for people to change their minds when there's yeah. difference, because a narrative that may be compelling to you may not be compelling to someone else. And once yeah. you go down that road, yeah, it's really hard to come back from that. Whereas I think there's this false sense that reason is more secure in, yes. in its likelihood to produce agreement. But when you go back to the abortion case that you were talking about before, I mean, one of the things I think is really good about the approach of kind of taking seriously epiphanies and empathy and their role is that let's face it reason hasn't produced any agreement in the abortion debate you could you could bring the most reasoning people together it's it's unlikely to produce agreement whereas at very least if you look at epiphanies the role of empathy the role of um, experience the role of emotion you can at least understand why you're not making headway with reason. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like that's a that's a that's a really good thing about about your your work is that maybe if there isn't agreement in those areas, maybe we can at least appreciate why there's not, mm. because the the role of emotion and apathy has been so different in different cases. And perhaps you can come to see why a
0: lot of the time um, philosophers, I'm afraid, are conforming to the stereotype of them as as wangling definitions, wrangling definitions and abstract formulae in, in a socio-political and historical vacuum. Um, so, I, I mean, going back to what I was just saying about political philosophy, I think that's true there. Having an abstract definition of what the state is um, is an activity which you might engage in, getting such an abstract definition. But it, it, it looks like it's being hugely undercut by understanding the history which is partly an evolutionary story and partly a socio-cultural story and partly an anthropological story, It's understanding the history about why we have states and where they came from kind of undercuts all that rational, all that scare quotes rational, you know, yeah. tightly rational um, definition wrangling. And I think something similar might be said about the abortion debate. Um, they're talking about protecting life and honouring life, respecting life. This is the thing that I used to do back in the days when I was... A natural law ethicist and took a more pro pro lifeline trying to figure out exactly what um honoring the value of life involves mm-hmm. um, it's an abstract exercise and it would actually be a lot more helpful to think about the experiences of 14 year olds who've been raped that would right. be more worthwhile
1: sure sure well we're going on to close to an hour so we should probably maybe cut it here but this has been a, a really great discussion and um Again, we'll hold up our matching pictures of the book because I strongly recommend that that people check this out. It's a a really interesting approach. I've got back
0: cover which you haven't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's true. I don't. Well, I guess I could scroll enough through through the book to get to that back cover. But
0: I'm very proud of the back cover because it's a picture of myself.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Is that? Tell us about the picture then.
0: Well, the the front picture was taken by my friend Stephen Venables when we were. Um, ski oh, engineering okay. in the Cairn yeah. and it's looking down at the Larick groove, a big groove between two mountains um, in, in the Cairn in Scotland and the back cover, I took it and it's the top of the lane looking out over the sea towards France in Jersey which oh, is nice. an island that we have family connections with um, and you know it's one of those occasions, point and click, you get home and you see actually by mistake,
1: without meaning to you've taken a really good photograph <laughs> as so many good photographs are it's totally unplanned by mistake didn't mean to do it yeah that's good that they let you choose the pictures because i know that um they don't always let us do that well that's right yeah (laughs) (laughs) well sophie grace chapel thank you for for coming on sophia and uh i'll 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 see you at some point later on social media i'm sure
0: yes it's been a blast (laughs) thanks very much kevin
1: thank you